What a beautiful time of worship with you, church family. Let's continue in that now. As we come to the Word, we are coming to the altar. Let's just open our hearts and our minds before the Lord to receive what He has for us this morning. I've been excited for three weeks to be able to come into this passage with you. I hope you'll see why. I was able to read a story this week. I don't know if it's a true story. Preachers and commentators write about all sorts of things, but it's a touching story about a boy who lived by the side of a lake, and he loved the lake, and he loved boats. That was his fascination. And so he and his dad very carefully and meticulously built a sailboat. It was beautiful. They carved a design, they set the mast, they made the the sails, and when it was completed, he would spend hours at the side of the lake playing with this boat that he had put so much time and love into. And one day as he was playing, a wind came along and filled up those sails and carried the boat out deep into the lake, deeper than he was able to go after it. And as he watched it disappear over the the bit of a horizon, he ran back to his dad and he just broken hearted. And his dad got him and they got out their real boat and went after it and they couldn't find it. They spent hours looking for it. And then in the days that followed, every spare moment, that boy went out and he walked around the lake and he found the little nooks and crannies and he was never able to find his boat until one day he was walking in town past a toy store and there in the window was his boat. And he went in and he said to the proprietor, you have my boat. And the proprietor said, I paid a fisherman good money for that boat. If you want to have it, you have to buy it. And so that little boy went out and he found odd jobs and every moment of his spare time he worked and he gathered his quarters and dollars and whatever he was able to earn for weeks and weeks until finally he had enough and he went back to that toy store with the money and he bought that boat and as he carried it home with joy in his eyes and a spring in his step he said you are twice mine now once because I made you and twice because I bought you And it's a beautiful story, but it pales in comparison to what we're going to read about our Lord and His relationship to us, in which we are three times the treasured possession of our Father. Once because He chose us, twice because He adopted us, and three times because He redeemed us. These are some of the blessings that Paul seeks to lay out for us in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Some of you might know that verses 3 through 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 are actually one long run-on sentence. It's a nightmare for every grammar teacher. It's a puzzle for every theologian trying to figure out how all the phrases relate to each other. 
but the intention of Paul was using the language of prayer and worship, building up upon itself over and over to create a sense of wonder and awe and an overwhelming gratitude for the blessings that God has poured out on us. He uses various modifiers and adjectives and adverbial phrases and qualifiers and descriptors and prepositional phrases and coordinating conjunctions and subordinate clauses, all of this building and building and building upon itself as he extols the blessings that are ours in Christ. We can't cover it all in one day. We are actually biting off quite a big bite to, to cover the first section. But let's read together. We're actually going to read verses 3 through the beginning of verse 8. And I'm going to insert a word here and there to help us see how this is one sentence as versus a series of sentences. So we can maybe experience some of that, that building up uh, that he built that he wrote into this passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love having predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom. And then he goes on for six and a half more verses, just continuing to, to pile one upon another the blessings that we experience in Christ. There are three of them that we will touch on this morning, and that is that we are chosen, adopted, and redeemed. We see that first one in verse 4, again where Paul says, lost my verses, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That word chosen means to be called out of a group or to be picked out of a group. In fact, in the classical Greek literature, one example that's really used is looking through that head of dark hair and finding the gray one <laughs> and plucking it out, identifying that individual out of the whole and, and drawing it out. In the New Testament, we see it when Jesus picked the 12 apostles. Remember, Jesus had a whole bunch of disciples, a lot of people who were following him, listening to his teaching. But after an evening of prayer, and he gathered all of those disciples, he called out, he chose 12 for himself, that they would be with him, that they would follow him, and they became the 12 apostles. Very similar example, 
after the death and resurrection of Christ and his ascension, uh, when Judas had done away with himself and the disciples needed to pick a twelfth again, they gathered the whole group together and chose two and then left the choice between those two up to the Lord. So you get the idea here of knowing all of the options and picking individuals out of the group. It's seen of Israel in the Old Testament where God says of the nation that he chose them. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy. Remember, holy means separated out. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And so we see in this passage... All that mass of people in humanity, God picked you. He saw you, he identified you, and he called you out for his own. And that was an intentional act on his part. This was done by God. He chose you. This whole passage, verses 3 through 11, are filled with the language of intentionality. Twice we read that he chose. Twice we read that he predestined. Twice we read that he did this for his pleasure. Three times we read that it was an act of his will. We read that he purposed, he appointed, he planned. All of this came from him and was oriented towards you. Even the grammar of the verb he chose is, is formulated in such a way to let us know that it wasn't some dispassionate choice, oh, I'll just pick one. It was a personally interested choice. He chose you for himself. That was his design, his intent in making this choice was his own good pleasure. The verse tells us that he did this before the creation of the world, before anything came to be, before there was a single star, before he formed the earth and called forth the, the plants and the animals, before you and I were ever born, he made that choice. Again, pointing to the fact that this is rooted in his nature. It's not rooted in some temporal circumstances related to time. Before time ever existed, God outside of time made that choice. And when the day comes, that time passes away and we are back in eternity, that choice remains unchanged, rooted in his very nature. You are his. And he made that choice for a purpose, which is laid out for us in this verse as well. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
We've already talked about holiness in this passage. Paul wrote to the holy people in Ephesus. And we saw that that doesn't mean that they were necessarily living in a holy way day to day. In fact, when Paul calls people holy people, he's often writing to people who are mired in the worst of circumstances and manifest the, the deeds of the flesh over and over again. Holiness is a position in the sense of God labels us that in Christ. You are mine. You are set apart from myself. You are holy. But that's actually not what's going on in this passage because there is another sense of holiness, and that is in which we live out that identity or that designation in which day to day we manifest holiness and we are growing in holiness and the day is coming. Paul describes that day later in Ephesians using these words, holy and blameless in his sight, to describe the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that Christ gave himself for the church and is working to make the church holy and blameless in his sight. A positive statement out of, huh, I have the wrong verse up there. A positive statement related to what we are, and that is holy, and a negative statement related to what we are not, blameless. There's no longer a spot. There's no longer a blemish. There's no longer that constant struggle with sin. There's no longer the fault or the shame or the guilt related to it. All of that is gone. The day is coming. God chose us for that day. He designated that day in eternity past when you will be, when we will be, when I will be standing in the presence of holy God without a single blemish with no more stain. He appointed us for it. He called us for it. Let that sink in. Holy God, knowing you and knowing me, knowing every word, knowing every place we go, knowing every thought we think, knowing every single one of those blemishes and spots and stains, said, that one is mine and will be holy and blameless in my sight. And that happens, as we see in this passage, as we see 11 times in the course of these verses, in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We've already talked about that concept. It's important to hit on it again because it is key for the whole book of Ephesians. To be in Christ is to identify with Him and actually be incorporated with Him so that what He did and what He is is true of us. He died, we died with Him. He rose, we rose with Him. He ascended on high, and Paul says we've already ascended with Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has language describing the Messiah, the chosen one who is going to come, Jesus. 
particularly in Isaiah, is emphasized as the suffering servant who has been chosen and set apart as God's own. And we, in Christ, are chosen and set apart along with Him. And this flow of blessing from God to us in and through Jesus Christ continues throughout the passage. Chosen and now adopted. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The Old Testament has passages which describe God's adoption of the people of Israel as his own. Probably one of the most powerful we went over together last fall in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, in which we read those words, out of Egypt I called my son. And actually he's talking about Israel. And he chose that people and he says, I brought you as my child out of Egypt. I nurtured you. I taught you. I raised you up as my own. So there's some sense of an in, in allusion to that pattern. But the, the most descriptive comparison that we can make actually relates to Roman culture and the Roman pattern of adoption in Paul's day. Because what you would have sometimes in a, in a patriarchal society in which the man was the unquestioned ruler of the home and the one who had all of the possessions, everything in that house belonged to him, and he would pass that inheritance on to his son. If a well-to-do man did not have a son to whom he could pass on an inheritance, he would adopt someone as his son. That adoption was usually the choice of one of his slaves to become his son. If he decided he wanted to adopt someone else, he would actually purchase that individual as a slave and then adopt that person out of slavery into the privileged position of being the son and being the heir. And this is what Paul is describing for us, adoption out of slavery into the privileged position of being a child of God. In chapter 2, Paul calls us, apart from Christ, dead in our sins, he calls us by nature children of wrath, children of disobedience. This is what we were caught in. And now he says, we are adopted as children of God. You're probably familiar with it. Such a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is, really it is, the word for daddy. It's the word that Jesus introduced to us as a way that we can address the Father. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in that we may also, in order that we may also share in his glory. No fear. God chose us not simply as one of a group of servants or, or one of a group of slaves or, or part of this uh, nebulous group of possessions. God chose us as a daughter, as a son of the living God and as a co-heir with Jesus Christ. This gives us the privilege of confidence in his presence. This gives us the privilege of prayer, boldly, fearlessly coming before him to make our request known. This gives us the privilege of an incredible inheritance in Jesus Christ. This is our identity. The Apostle John in chapter 3 cried out, how much the Father has lavished upon us His love that we should be called the children of God. What an incredible blessing. And you know, He didn't simply do it out of charity or maybe some sort of sense of obligation. This verse says that the reason God made you his child was for his pleasure. As part of his will. It's talking about passionate concern and enraptured delight. That's how God looks on you this morning as his son or as his daughter. This act was grounded in himself for himself. He is the foundation and the origin and the executor of all that it means to adopt us out of slavery into being a child of God. It resides in his character, and part of the assurance of it residing in his character and his choice is that it is not something that we have to work to gain or something that we need to fear losing. It simply is a fact that he established. Several people this morning have said, I'm really looking forward to you talking about predestination. We're going to settle the issues today, right? And I actually said, no, actually we're not going to settle the issues. I'm sorry. But that's not Paul's emphasis. The issues aren't what Paul wants us to hear. It's the blessing and by the way, that is true of the theologians who have wrestled with this issue. Nobody doubts the facts of predestination and election in Scripture. They are facts. 
We can read about it in a couple of other places. I'd like to do that because it also points out to us a significant aspect of the, I guess, the logical order in which this takes place. Let's look at Romans 8 again. Beautiful passage. The whole chapter, the whole book, of course. Uh, But there's so much in Romans 8 about adoption and so much about predestination and being chosen and sanctification and the love of God. Uh, And in verse 29, we read, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The interpreters really do struggle over the relationship between verse 4 and verse 5. He chose us having predestined us. I think that this kind of spells it out for us, that God's predestination, that is the idea of him designating ahead of time a pathway, God marking out the course ahead of time, the course to adoption is what in his mind comes before the choice then of you and me and you, dear sister, uh, to be a child of the living God. Another verse, just a few later here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says the same thing, uh, that he predestined and then he called. So this order is something that is laid out very clearly in Scripture, and the people who dispute about it actually basically say, we've got to acknowledge the facts, but we can ask ourselves the question, why? A lot of us think that John Calvin, for example, formed this very great theology because he wanted to uh, establish a system. What actually happened is that he laid out the facts of Scripture and then he said, but why? Why would God choose me when I was dead in my trespasses and sin? Why would God choose me when I was a slave to death and to Satan? I don't know. That was his answer. I don't know but it is rooted in the love and the character of God, and I'm going to have to be happy with that. And for some reason, in his love and his character, he chose me, and I'm going to praise him for it. Jacob Arminius wants a reason. Why did God choose me? Scripture makes it so clear that he predestined, that he elected. Why me and not somebody else? Well, God knows all things. God must have looked forward and saw that I would choose him. And because I'm going to choose him, he then said, I'm going to make him able to choose me. And so he selected me based on his foreknowledge of a choice that I would make. The point is that doesn't matter today nearly as much as the facts of Scripture matter for us. 
And the fact is, if you are in Christ, you were selected by God and made His child. The doctrine of predestination was not intended to be a philosophical exercise and wasn't intended to be a theological bludgeon that we beat each other over the head with. And frankly, people who are a whole lot smarter than me and probably smarter than most of you have argued about this for a long time. So we're not going to settle the issues of why, but we can rest in the facts of what and who what God has done and who we are in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite commentators wrote, the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. I'm going to read it again. The message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence. In an age in which we long for identity, God gives us a profound sense of confidence and security in His love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, or shame. And so you've been called out. And you have been adopted. The thing is, how can that be? How can he designate us to be holy and blameless and make us his holy children when we are in fact so very unholy? It is because he also is the one who redeems. Redemption is also found throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament law, provision was made to redeem slaves. In other words, to buy a person out of slavery to purchase their freedom. Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. Again, probably the most beautiful example of redemption. It's something that we considered together in the Minor Prophets, in the book of Hosea, chapter 3, when the prophet, as an example of God's love towards unfaithful Israel, when the prophet was told to marry an unfaithful woman, who then, after they were married and had children, was unfaithful again and left, and fell into the auction block. And God tells Hosea, go back and buy her back for yourself. And he pays the price of a slave to bring Gomer back into his home and to love her again. This is redemption, to buy out of slavery, to buy back from sin and from death. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul lays it out in, in a little more lengthy terms. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. A dominion is a kingdom. A dominion is a place where you are held and can't get out. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can be God's because he bought us back. And he bought us back at a great price. Paul says in this passage, oh, we forgot to read it. We got to go back and read it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The redemption comes through the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for us. Every drop of that blood more precious than all of the jewels in all of the world. Think about it for a second. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, God of very God, possessing of all glory and all honor, worthy of all praise. Jesus Christ, for our sake, became flesh. The God-man walking on this earth, coursing through his veins, the precious blood. He lived a sinless life. He lived the life we can't live and didn't live. He fulfilled every aspect of the law on our behalf. He did everything that we cannot do. And then he went to the cross and died for our sake, taking on himself our sin, taking on himself all of those spots and blemishes and stains and things that separate us from the holiness of God, taking upon himself the wrath of God poured out on sin. As his blood flowed from his body, he was buying us for himself. That's why Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect. In eternity past, before you or I ever came to be, before we were a twinkle in our parents' eye, God saw you. He said, I want you to be mine. I'm going to make you my daughter. And in order to do that, I'm going to spill out the precious blood of my son. And so we have been chosen adopted, and redeemed. Paul further defines redemption as the forgiveness of sins. Just have to make it clear. God forgives our sin 
in Jesus Christ. The psalmist said that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes his sin from us. The Apostle John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we ask the question, isn't there a limit to it? How patient will he be? Does he really know me? Yes, he does, and no, there isn't. This verse says it. The measure of his forgiveness is the riches of his grace. That's how much he forgives. When his grace runs out, that's when his forgiveness will run out, and his grace will never run out. In fact, the verse here is framed with grace upon grace. He starts out saying that he's doing this to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely gives us in Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Just to make sure we understand the fact, it starts with grace, it ends with grace. Our life is built on grace upon grace, poured out upon us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I cringe when we put these words up about the blood of Christ, and I think, what if somebody doesn't understand all these things? That's kind of weird. Well, understand, when we sing about being washed in the blood of the Lamb, when we sing about that blood still flowing, we are singing about the riches of God's grace that will never run out, that will never run dry. So what is our response? It has to be the same one as the Apostle Paul. It can be nothing else than to break forth in praise at the glories of this plan. He says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who did these things to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what it's aimed for. In the end, He gets praise because of His wonderful plan. In Romans chapter 11, again at the end of the theological section of Romans, after he's laid out this plan of salvation, this glorious plans, he breaks forth into him. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We sing songs of praise Sunday after Sunday because there's no end to His grace and there should be no end to our lifting up the glories of His grace in response to Him. And we, in doing so, we are joining with the great hymns of the book of Revelation. 
the 24 elders who stand before the throne of God, constantly singing praise in which they say, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for yourself. Let us never cease to be overwhelmed with the glories of His grace and to respond in overflowing praise. There's another response here, and that's holiness, that's sanctification. The reason that He chose you was to be holy and blameless in His sight. It seems impossible now. Can it actually be true? Yes. And He's doing the work back to Romans chapter 8 to conform us to the image of the character of His Son so that He will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You know what? That work can be painful. He points out to us by the Holy Spirit things that we don't want to see. Wait, that is me? Well, no. And that's a key point. That is not you. You are a son and a daughter of the living God. So stop living and thinking and acting in ways that are not you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, be transformed more and more into living out the image of God in you. We have to understand that this is not a matter of legalism. Once again, He knows all of the shame. He knows all of the guilt. He knows absolutely everything about you and me, even the things that we try to hide from ourselves and for other people are laid out plainly before Him, and He chose you as His own anyway in eternity past. Stop striving to gain it. Stop working to win his approval when he has already made you his own. Instead, respond in love. It's disputed at the beginning of these verses, at the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5, that phrase, in love. Is it, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight in love? Or is it, in love he predestined us? It can kind of go either way. It's okay because Jesus made it clear in John chapter 14, if you love me, obey my commands. Our obedience to Jesus Christ, living according to that pattern that he laid out for us, is a loving response to who we are in Christ. Our identity is secure. He gives us all the favor freely in his Son. We respond to him in loving acts of sanctification.
And then, just one more little comment here. This is not in the passage, but I think it is worth us considering. We are created to reflect the image of God. We reflect the image of God in all kinds of things. We reflect His image in creativity. We reflect His image in loving relationships. Jesus says that when we have received things freely, we freely give those things. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do for others as I have done for you. And I cannot think of a more beautiful way to reflect the image of the God who chooses and adopts and redeems than to adopt, to foster, to find someone who is in the most desperate of circumstances and to pour out love because it comes from God and flows out to us and we can give it to others. There are families in our church family who have done that. We should pray for them and bless them and support them. And we should consider for ourselves all of these blessings that God has poured out on me is this maybe one way that I can reflect the image of God by passing that blessing on to someone else. I think it is. Let's be a church that lives out what it means to have the image of Christ in us. And let's pray together. Lord, words are inadequate. Thank you for the glorious riches of your grace that you have lavished on us in Christ, just pouring out until it's overflowing. That we can be called your children. Father, I pray for anyone who is struggling with identity issues. And we all do. That we would not try to find that identity in something that we create for ourselves or claim from others or try and win. That we would find our true and greatest beyond anything that we could ever imagine to be a son or daughter of the living God. Thank you. What a privilege. What a blessing. How great and glorious and innumerable are your graces that you bestow on us. And so we thank you. And we praise you. How good, how kind, how loving, how wise, how glorious, how holy, how merciful you are. Father, would you fill our hearts with love? 
love for you so that we truly can put aside the things that so easily entangle us and hinder us so that we can say no to the things that we are not and say yes to the things that we are. I'm a son of the king. Give me the grace to live that way. And for every son and daughter here, we pray the same. And Father, we do thank you and pray your blessing on those among us who have walked the very challenging road of fostering and adoption. Thank you that your love can be reflected and poured out on others. And it costs. But it doesn't cost even close to what it cost you. And it's our privilege to, to serve you that way. We pray that you would bless these brothers and sisters and these families. And perhaps there are others here whom you are positioning to do the same. Lord, would you call them and bless them and help us as a church to do everything we can to equip them and support them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.